Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Howdy, everybody. CJ here, and welcome to episode number 240 of the Dangerous History Podcast. So, for this episode, I'm going to be sharing with you a talk, a speech I did at an event about two months ago in early July but for a variety of reasons, have only just now gotten around to preparing it into a DHP episode to share with you all. But anyway, this was an event I did at the first in-person event for Tom Woods's Tom School of Life, of which I am a member. And I was one of the speakers who spoke, who presented at this first event back in early July in Orlando, and I'm planning on attending the next event of this type, which I think think, if I remember right, is supposed to be in January, although it's possible. I think the exact date hasn't been set yet, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, I'm a member of Tom Woods's Tom School of Life, and I highly recommend it uh, to anybody listening. It is hard to sum up concisely. I'll, of course, link to it in the show notes. And let's just say it's really about making you a better you and a more successful you to cope in this dark and ever-darkening age in which we seem to find ourselves right now. So, just a few of the topics that have been covered in online, the online seminars of Tom School of Life, as well as this in-person event that I spoke at, would include everything from strategic relocation to financial planning and management, entrepreneurship, health, all kinds of other self-improvement type topics, and many, many more. So anyway, at the event, I spoke on the topic of propaganda. My title for my talk was Lessons for the Modern Propagandist, and I wanted to explain in as concise of a form as I could a lot of what I've learned over the last 20 plus years of studying the theory and history of propaganda about ways that it works, common techniques that are used to this day, some of which are now over 100 years old, and some of which go back even much further than that, of course, but sort of modern propaganda, I would argue, really begins around the period of World War I. And my hope was that by giving this presentation to the people who attended this wonderful event, that, you know, I'm sure they're generally more savvy by far than the average person at spotting propaganda. But even so, I hoped that I would be able to give them even more things to look for and think about when trying to exercise some mental self-defense against being propagandized, and also some tools and ideas about how to try to help other people kind of get through being propagandized, as well as some methods of propaganda that could perhaps be used ethically in other realms. 
So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this presentation, and again, I highly recommend Tom's School of Life. I went to the first in-person event in Orlando. I plan on going to the second in-person event in January. I'm very happy to introduce to you right now an all-around great guy, an expert on Florida history, we discovered, and also the host of the highly recommended Dangerous History podcast, and that is our friend C.J. Kilmer. All right, so I am in good company with, uh, I believe it was David uh, yesterday evening. I prefer paper. I am analog old school and I will be keeping time on my analog watch. So somehow I guess I drew the short straw because I am now the human obstacle standing in between all of you and lunch. Believe it or not, studies have shown that judges tend to be harsher in trials if things are being decided before lunch versus after. Same thing with parole boards. So if you're ever up for parole, try to get your appointment with the parole board after lunch. So I hope you all won't judge me too harshly. Also, by the way, unfortunately, I missed Tom's webinar on giving speeches and presentations on Wednesday. I was signed up for it, and then I had a minor family emergency and had to miss it, and I haven't had a chance to see the recording yet. So please don't be too hard on me if I do a bunch of the things he said don't do and don't do many of the things he said to do. So I'm talking to you all today about propaganda. And propaganda is one of those subjects where if you only know a little bit about it, kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect kicks in, and you feel like you know all there is to know, and you think, oh yeah, I can spot propaganda, I can understand it, and maybe you watched a few clips from like, you know, old Nazi propaganda films or whatever, and you're like, oh yeah, it's real obvious, I can pick that out, I know what's going on. Um, but the reality is, propaganda is a much more complicated and nuanced and multifaceted sort of a thing, uh, particularly in a so-called democracy. And in many ways, propaganda in a democracy is more effective than propaganda in an actual like totalitarian old school regime because it tends to be a lot slicker. It tends to be a lot harder to spot and therefore it's more effective. So all the way back in the era of Andrew Jackson, Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America said, I know of no country in which there is so little independence of mind and real freedom of thought as in America. He said that right after saying something along the lines of, you know, there's very little in the way of government censorship, First Amendment, whatever. 
and yet there's so little independence of thought and freedom of mind. And that was 200 years ago. Think how much more so that's true today. And I think what he was really observing is uh, that in a democracy, the enforcement of thought control is in some ways more effective than in an authoritarian regime because a lot of it relies on social pressure and lateral enforcement. So yeah, you may not have you know, much, if any, direct uh, state censorship, but that doesn't mean that there's not heavy-duty thought control going on. Uh, now a little bit longer of a quote, bear with me, but I think this is an important one. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in a democratic society. Those who manipulate the unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes forms, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together in a, in a smoothly functioning society. We are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, who harness old social forces and contrive new ways to bind and guide the world. Anybody know where that comes from? Yeah. Opening uh, paragraphs of Propaganda by Edward Bernays. He wrote that in the late 1920s, almost a century ago. So already, you know, if you think that hidden forces trying to manipulate how you perceive the world, what you think, what you believe, and even how you act, is a new thing that came along with social media or whatever, well, a century ago, uh, Edward Bernays was already figuring this out. And he's an interesting guy, by the way, worth looking into if you're interested in the sort of stuff I'm talking about here. Um, many of you may know he was actually a nephew of Sigmund Freud. And modern propaganda, propaganda is as old as human civilization. You know, you can look back to like the ancient Egyptians or the ancient Sumerian cultures. They had propaganda. Now it was limited in the forms it could take because obviously there weren't very many communication technologies and the vast majority of people couldn't read. So propaganda for the masses very often took uh, the form of things like statues, architecture, and for the you know, literate minority, little inscriptions and things saying how the Pharaoh's awesome. But modern propaganda, which is what I'm mainly talking about today, really kicks off around the era of World War I. So this is when Edward Bernays got his start. Modern propaganda is kind of based on the nexus of psychology, advertising, and journalism. So Edward Bernays was involved with the infamous Committee on Public Information during World War I. In the private sector, after World War I, he went into the private sector and worked for various corporations. 
Uh, some of you may know he was famous for co-opting feminism in order to get women to start smoking cigarettes. He had the famous Torches of Liberty campaign, where the message was, hey, are you a modern, empowered, liberated woman? Don't let a man tell you not to smoke cigarettes. And when I first learned of that years ago, I thought it was really interesting because it reminded me very much of the way that you know, modern propaganda will co-opt the kind of wokest ideology and incorporate it into their propaganda and basically say, hey, do you want to be you know, a socially progressive, tolerant person, whatever, not be mean old racist? Well, you know, buy this razor blade, whatever it is. <laughs> Edward Bernays had a long career after that Oh, by the way, another one, he pushed Lucky Strikes, saying, they're good for your voice. They're the best cigarettes for your, for your vocal cords. Um, he went back and worked for the government again during World War II in propaganda, no surprise. And he was still working for the government as late as the 1950s during Operation PB Success, which was the CIA operation that overthrew a democratically elected government in Guatemala and replaced it with a military dictatorship. So interesting guy uh, who gives us a window into kind of the earliest phases of modern propaganda. People have trouble defining propaganda. It's one of those words that has many different definitions. And some people, like Bernays, will insist that propaganda is morally neutral, that propaganda can be used for good or used for ill. I don't agree with that, at least not in the modern meaning of the, of the word. Because to me, what defines propaganda, because if you say propaganda is anything designed to influence how you think or what you do, well then, really, that could be a whole bunch of things that are not necessarily you know, scary or malevolent or whatever. But I think most people, at least in our era, in, the, in their mind, propaganda has a negative connotation. And so why is that? And to me, the, the key that differentiates propaganda from just simple persuasion is being manipulative and being deceptive. You see, if I come up here and I say, I'm going to persuade you that Woodrow Wilson was the worst president in US history, and here are my reasons why, there's nothing manipulative. I'm being very upfront about what I'm trying to do, and I'm you know, trying my best to use reason and evidence and things to persuade you. But if instead I use a method that's based on manipulating you, that's based on manipulating your emotions and beliefs without you realizing that's what I'm doing, that's propaganda. So propaganda is really kind of like invisible malware that somebody else is trying to install on your operating system without you realizing it. And the less you realize it, the more effective it is. So, what I'm going to do now is run through some, what I'm calling, lessons for the modern propagandist. So, this is intended sort of in the spirit of Machiavelli's Prince, where I'm kind of telling you how to be bad if you wanted to, but I don't really want you to be bad. At least, you know, I know there's debate about if Machiavelli meant the prince as, a, as kind of a satire or whatever versus if he really meant it, you know, literally like, hey, behave like a psychopath. But um, I'm approaching it in the, the reading of Machiavelli of I'm telling you how to be bad, not because I want you to be bad, but because I'm trying to explain how bad people do what they do so that you can understand it. 
And I hope that by giving you a bit of a window into uh, modern propaganda techniques and how they work, that you'll be able to see it and understand it more. Now this is, you know, well, it's always a good idea to flatter the audience, but I'm sure this is a you know better read and more intelligent than average group of people here versus just random people walking around outside. So I'm sure that at least some of the things I'm going to tell you, many of you already know, but I hope that at least some of them you don't. And I hope that in some senses, in some cases, I'll be able to uh, articulate something that maybe you've kind of fuzzily been grappling with and then you hear it, you know, expressed very clearly. I, I know, to me, that's always a great moment, that eureka moment when you hear something or you read something that, you know, something you were kind of like hazily kind of, you know, grappling with, trying to exactly figure out what you think, and you hear it articulated, you know, cleanly and concisely, you go, oh, that's it, that's it. So, first lesson for the would-be modern propagandist. The most effective propaganda is always going to be that which does not appear to be propaganda to most people. Again, that idea of invisible malware. If malware is installed on your operating system and it's completely above board and you can you know, see little pop-ups saying, hey, we're putting malware on, well, you can do something about it, right? You know there's a problem. So you want the propaganda to be as slick and not appearing as propaganda as possible. So what should it be disguised as? Well, a lot of the big ones that are most effective are things like news, information, art, education. Right? When you're being presented with those things, most people, if they've not studied the theory and practice and history of propaganda, are just like, oh, great. You know, and, and your defenses are relatively low. Your, your mental defenses are down. Uh, whereas if, if I come in and go, hey, I'm going to show you a propaganda film. Get ready to be brainwashed. Immediately, those defenses go up, and you're going to be more skeptical, right? But if I go, hey, here's this, you know, uh, interesting piece of educational uh, information. And then one of the biggest and most effective is entertainment. Entertainment. Because if you're walking into a movie theater to watch a feature film, or if you're turning on a television program or something like that, or you're picking up you know, a fictional novel, uh, which is less often used for propaganda these days because no one reads anymore, um, but you know, in, in times gone past, when you're about to sit down and plug into something that is entertainment, that's when your defenses are lowest. And so this is why, for example, uh, Hollywood and the big TV companies are so effective at propagandizing the masses. And some of you may know that uh, the US government has been heavily involved in Hollywood filmmaking and in um, big TV productions for, in some cases, a century or more. In fact, it's almost impossible to watch a big budget a Hollywood film or a big-budget TV program that depicts the military in any way in which the Pentagon didn't have some sort of a role in molding it. The same is true as well of the CIA. Virtually every large-budget production of you know, television or film that depicts the CIA in any way, they had uh, involvement in crafting it, in many cases up to and including script rewrites. 
Same thing with the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover got them in on that very early on. He realized the power of film and television. So again, this is why whenever you see the FBI depicted in film or television, they're always nothing but Dudley Do-Right good guys who are catching Hannibal Lecter and Bonnie and Clyde and people like that. For some reason, nobody has made a big budget Hollywood film showing you COINTELPRO. Same thing with the CIA. They're always depicted as, you know, going after the bad guys, catching actual terrorists and all this sort of thing. They're never depicted, you know, overthrowing democratic governments in other countries, um, you know, sponsoring genocides and all the other fun stuff they do, torturing people. You know, occasionally a movie or TV show will depict that, but it's usually a smaller budget sort of a thing. So the best propaganda, the most effective propaganda is always that which doesn't appear to be propaganda. Related to that, if you're going to do propaganda, you want to do propaganda through intermediaries as much as possible. You don't want to do it directly where people can kind of see the fingerprints. Uh, and you can often count on, if you're doing propaganda in a way that's allied with, uh, for lack of a better term, the establishment, you can count on the corporate press basically allowing things to be hidden in plain sight. Like, for example, it is not secret that the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI, all have what, what are called entertainment liaison offices that interface with Hollywood and big TV uh, companies. It's not secret. You can look it up. But I bet you not one American in a thousand knows that. You know, again, probably people in this room are exceptions, probably more of you, you know, know about this stuff. So uh, you want to basically do what that crazy uh, lady who almost headed the Ministry of Truth called information laundering. Remember that terrible Mary Poppins song? It made her look deranged. But if you actually listen to the words of that song, she's doing projection. She's basically describing what she and people like her do, but she's projecting it onto, you know, her opponents, the opponents of the regime. Next lesson for the modern propagandist. Don't just rely on top-down propaganda. That's what most people think about when they think about propaganda. And yeah, top-down is always going to be part of it, where powerful institutions, whether they be government or corporate, you know, are putting out the messages they want. But as uh, Tolkien, Tolkien, de Tocqueville kind of alluded to in that quote I started off with, in a modern democracy, you can rely on a lot of horizontal and lateral enforcement and a lot of horizontal propagandizing. So if you can kind of create a tribe around your message, you can then rely on that tribe to spontaneously create their own propaganda, to reinforce your message, and to the people on the receiving end, that's powerful. Because they see, oh, this isn't coming from the Ministry of Truth, this isn't coming from some big corporation, this is coming from, you know, some person on the street that I know. And so it's more, um, uh, it, it tends to be more effective. Because again, it's more concealed. Next thing, narrative, is always more powerful than facts. And that's just a fact of our species, really. We were dealing with narratives for tens of thousands of years before we ever developed something like the scientific method, logic, critical thinking, any of these things that we use to try and ascertain facts. And so as a result, if I can give you a compelling narrative, and really get it you know, into your psyche on a gut level, 
Probably, if somebody else then presents you with a whole bunch of facts which call my narrative into question, they're not going to hear it. They're going to have uh, what, what psychologists call the backfire effect, which is where if you have a deeply held belief and someone presents you with contrary evidence, most people's reaction is not going to be to go, huh, that's information I didn't know. Gee whiz, I might have to deeply reevaluate re the beliefs I've held for 20 years. Mm -mm. Psychological experiments have shown that in that situation, the person you're presenting with contrary evidence is likely to double down on their belief rather than reevaluate it. And a lot of that has to do with narrative. We are storytelling species. And this is, you know, in part, I think, what Stalin was getting at with this famous line about one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Right? If you tell a compelling story about one individual, that's going to resonate a lot more with people than if you go, oh, this many millions of people were killed and this many millions of people sent to the gulag, whatever. Next. In propaganda, it's always better to be on offense than defense. And a specific example of this that um, I just finished recording yesterday, a giant multi-hour episode uh, for my podcast about British propaganda operations in the US during World War II, which were extensive. And this is going to be a giant, like, Dan Carlin-length episode once I get it all, you know, edited together. But the British were way more effective at propaganda in World War I than the Germans, by far. And there's a bunch of reasons for this. And you can listen to the episode when it comes out in a few days to find out. English History Podcast, wherever you like to consume your podcasts. But one of the reasons why the British were so much more effective at propaganda in World War I, aside from they did a better job of concealing it than the, than the Germans did, is that the British were on offense most of the time. They were demonizing the Germans. Oh, these evil Huns, these evil barbarians, the Kaiser's Satan, you know. They were just on offense relentlessly. Whereas the Germans were on the back foot most of the time. They were playing defense. Um, another problem, too, was that the, the Germans tended to do propaganda in a very kind of legalistic, rational sort of a way. They would try to systematically debunk the things the British were saying about them. Like, this is factually incorrect, this is and it just doesn't, doesn't resonate with the masses. But the Germans spent a lot of their propaganda efforts trying to rebut the horrible things the British were saying about them. And, you know, if you're always on offense, sorry, if you're always on defense, you're probably not going to win the fight, right? There's times where it's the right thing to do to be defensive, but you got to go on offense sometimes. And in propaganda, you want to be on offense more than you're on defense. Next point. For maximum effectiveness, propaganda needs to be paired with kind of the flip side of the coin, which is censorship. It's not enough to just pump your narrative into everybody's minds. You need to, in any way you can, silence, demonize, marginalize contrary points of view, dissident views, contrary information, right? Malinformation. Have you guys heard this, this new term? There's misinformation, there's disinformation. Those have been around for a while. Now we've got malinformation. What malinformation means, according to the Ministry of Truth, is that it's things that are actually true, 
but they're inconvenient. Yeah, like Al Gore said, inconvenient truths, right? Um, only these ones are actually true. So think about what that means about the regime, by the way, that they're actually saying out loud, yes, there are facts that contradict our narrative and what we're trying to do. They're true, but they're bad because they get in the way of us doing what we want to do. Now, with censorship, here's the thing. Just like with propaganda itself, censorship is most effective when it's most stealthy. And the US government, I think, learned that in World War I. In World War I, the censorship was very blatant and heavy-handed. I'll, I'll be covering this in, in upcoming episodes of my uh, series on World War I propaganda. But, you know, under the Espionage and Sedition Acts, Woodrow Wilson was having thousands of Americans thrown into prison for giving speeches or for writing things that the government didn't like and forcibly shutting down lots of pub publications and things like this. And that was what we would call today bad optics. It's a big part of why Warren Harding got elected in a landslide in 1920. People were sick of uh, Wilson, sick of progressivism, uh, had, had really kind of had second thoughts on the war. And also, I think they had a lot of disillusion because of how much civil liberties were violated blatantly during World War I. So if you look at World War II, there still was a ton of censorship, if anything, even more. But the censorship in World War II tended to be more kind of quiet, behind-the-scenes, light-touch stuff that wasn't obvious to the public. To avoid the bad optics of, like, dragging people off to jail for giving a speech. So it was much more low-key and hidden. Next point. The most effective propaganda will contain relatively few outright falsehoods or fabrications. Making something up completely, a lot of times people just have it in their head like, oh yeah, propaganda's lies. Well, no, propaganda is manipulative and deceptive, but really good propaganda has relatively few lies. The problem with lying, with just flat out, you know, putting something out there that's blatantly factually untrue, especially today, this, is, this was less of a problem 100 years ago, but especially today, is it's not that hard to fact check basic data points, basic, you know, claims of fact. So that's a risky thing. If you put out something that's just blatantly made up and untrue, lots of people are going to figure it out really quick, especially in the age of the smartphone. And then once that gets exposed, then a lot more people are going to be skeptical the next time you say something, right? It's the old, you know, kind of uh, fool me once sort of a thing, right, as a great president once said. Point is, you don't get fooled again. So you really want to minimize how much you flat out put out lies. Instead, your real uh, key tools to, as Michael Malice famously puts it, to be factual but not truthful. Two related tools. One is cherry picking. You want your propaganda to contain as many facts as possible. But you want those facts to be carefully curated so that it all points in the direction of the narrative point you're trying to make. But you also want to lie by omission. What does that mean? Selectively leaving out other facts related to the point you're trying to make or the story you're trying to tell 
that might drastically change people's perception of the overall issue that you're addressing. So the reason this is so powerful is because it's hard to fact check things that are left out. In other words, those are unknown unknowns, in the words of another great American hero. So, you know, if someone gives you a bunch of facts and you go quickly, you know, fact check each one of those, you go, true, true, true. Oh, this person must be telling me the truth. I'm now internalizing their narrative. But there might have been a whole bunch of other facts related to that issue that would drastically change your overall perception of that issue, but you don't even know they're not there because they're not there, right? It's hard to look up a piece of information that you don't know exists. That's why it's so effective. Um, and, you know, the way I often explain this to uh, my students when I'm teaching in my day job is I talk about a hypothetical, because a lot of times where you see really powerful propaganda is, of course, in relation to war. And a lot of times it's in relation to, like, why a war started, who's responsible for it, that sort of thing. So the way I tell it to my students is I say, imagine I'm at a bar and some guy punches me in the face. And then I'm telling you the story, and I'm like, man, I was at the bar having a good time, and this crazy SOB just punched me in the face. What's your perception of that story? I'm the victim, right? I'm blameless. Some crazy person just got it in their head. You know, th this is basically the story you're told about Pearl Harbor, 9-11, you know, fill in the blank, right? It's like, oh, they just woke up one morning and said, ah, oh, we hate America now for some reason. Let's go attack them, right? But of course, when you actually get the context and the backstory of all the things usually leading up to these sorts of things, it looks very different. It looks very different. So what if in my case of, you know, getting punched at the bar, I deliberately left out in telling you the story. You know, for two hours before this guy punched me, I was constantly harassing him, insulting him, getting in his face, insulting his girlfriend, you know, every last thing. And suppose the guy even repeatedly was like, hey man, get out of my face, leave me alone, whatever. And I just kept, eh, 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 eh. and then finally, finally, after enough provocation, the guy loses it and decks me. How different is that story now? Am I a completely innocent, blameless victim? Or is it much more complicated? And, you know, in that case, it doesn't necessarily absolve the guy for punching me, right? If he's the first person to take it physical, like he still shouldn't have done that. But it's more complicated, right? It wasn't like I was just innocently minding my own business and bad thing happened to me all of a sudden. So, next point. And this is sort of a, of a particular form of lying by omission. And it really kind of, you know, also applies to the, the hypothetical I just, you know, shared with you, which is a very powerful technique to shape a narrative is to start the story or drop the needle at the place where it's most convenient for the narrative point you're trying to make, right? So, you know, history starts on 9-11. Well, yeah, if that's where you drop the needle on the record, it sure does look one way. Whereas if you, you know, pull a Scott Horton and do decades worth of backstory and everything leading up to that, it's like, oh, it's, it's a totally different thing, you know? And again, doesn't absolve the people who did it of doing that, but it does kind of make it much more complicated. Next point, effective propaganda plays either to the best or to the worst elements of our nature. But the most effective propaganda 
is that which simultaneously plays to both. So let me give you an example of a type of propaganda that simultaneously plays to the best and to the worst of our nature. World War I. A lot of British propaganda, both for their own population and for uh, American consumption, revolved around the whole idea of poor little Belgium. Because, of course, that was the British government's excuse for going to war against Germany in the first place. It wasn't really the reason, but it was their, it was their alibi, right? Um, well, in their propaganda, the British would very often, uh, if, they're, if they're addressing this issue of poor little Belgium, they'd very often combine portraying the Belgians as simultaneously innocent victims and heroic resistors and portray the Germans as these evil aggressive monsters who are allegedly going off and chopping people up and nailing people to crosses with bayonets and all the other things the British said, which in that case they were actually making a lot of stuff up. So think about, you know, we've got this, uh, most of us have the, the classic, you know, black wolf and white wolf kind of duking it out within us all the time. And so we're, we're susceptible to looking for enemies and villains, but we're also susceptible to um, looking for, for heroes, looking for victims, that sort of thing, looking for people that either we admire or that we feel sorry for, right? And in the case of, of the British propaganda re, uh, revolving around Belgium, they're simultaneously saying, look at these innocent, noble Belgians, don't you want to save them? That's appealing to the white wolf. And then they're simultaneously saying, and these evil Hun monsters, someone needs to stop them, and they don't deserve to live, and the Kaiser Satan. So notice I'm simultaneously appealing to the better angels of your nature and to the worst. That's powerful. Next one. Statistics, and this kind of goes along with the whole idea of facts versus narrative. Statistics can be effective but only when used very sparingly and selectively. Now, obviously, you want to cherry pick and only bring up the, st the statistics that buttress your narrative. But if you just barrage somebody with statistics, you're going to completely lose them. Unless they're a statistician or a, you know, a mathematician or something like this, most people are not wired to just be confronted with an avalanche of statistics and go, all right, I'm convinced. Most people are just going to go into you know, screensaver mode on their brain after a couple of statistics. So you always want to be very careful about not overdoing that. Have one or two really powerful statistics that seem to completely prove your narrative, and that's it. And then immediately launch into an anecdote about poor little Jimmy or whatever. Next one. It's nice to be able to give people heroes in your propaganda. It's nice. But what's way more important is to give them villains. And a quote from the famous book, The True Believer, by Eric Hoffer. Hatred is the most accessible and comprehensive of all unifying agents. Mass movements can rise and spread without belief in a god, but never without belief in a devil. And I think all you've got to think about is the kind of propaganda narratives of the current uh, progressive left, right? 
they're basically all unified around um, hating, and they kind of mold these things together in their minds. Uh, Trump, Trump supporters, and Vladimir Putin for some reason, right? <laughs> They've got these like this weird, like blurry, you know, multifaceted thing. It's interchangeable. And meanwhile, none of them like Joe Biden. None of them like Kamala Harris. You don't really see much of their propaganda being like, look what a great guy Biden is. He's making America awesome. He's, you know, saving us from all these things. No, they're, they're, they would rather not talk about it. But they're still able to cohere together around enemies. And, you know, they're still doing it even though Trump's been out of office for several years. There's, he's still the boogeyman. He's like Hannibal for the Romans. The Romans, years after they had defeated Hannibal and Hannibal had died, the Romans were still using the boogeyman memory of Hannibal to like scare people into line. Romans were even telling their kids like, oh, if you don't go to bed on time, Hannibal might get you. So um, I, I've decided that basically uh, Trump is the Hannibal for the American left. And all you have to do is look at what's happened to CNN's ratings since Trump left office, right? They got a whole new lease on life in their ratings while Trump was there because they had somebody to hate. Now, they still hate him, but since he's out of office, it doesn't have the same, you know, resonance, so they're trying to switch to, um, you know, to Vladimir Putin or whatever because he's still around, or the specter of Trump possibly pulling a Grover Cleveland in a couple of years, which would be interesting. A couple more points, and I'll close it out. Market research or knowing your audience is very important for the propagandist because you need different propaganda for different people and you need to be able to continuously look at feedback and figure out, is what I'm doing being effective or do I need to make changes? And that's another case that, believe it or not, over a century ago, the British already figured out when they were running their propaganda operations in the U.S. to try and bring the U.S. into the war on their side. They were constantly, as best they could, they didn't have like Gallup polls and stuff yet, but they were constantly trying to use whatever barometers they could to figure out, is what we're doing working? And they would, you know, if something appeared to be working, they would do more of that. And if something else appeared to not be working very well, they would, you know, stop that. Whereas the Germans just kind of kept doing their thing. They just kind of kept making their, you know, kind of autistic, legalistic case of why they weren't as evil as the British said. And, you know, even when it didn't seem to work, they just kind of kept doing it. And so, you know, as a result, the British were constantly making their propaganda more effective uh, and catering it better and better and better uh, to the American mind, such as it is. So, the last point and this is potentially kind of a dangerous one, even if you're the propagandist and your propaganda wins. Because so much of, of effective propaganda revolves around the idea of enemies and the idea of, you know, it's even more important to create it. Creating an us is powerful, but creating a them is even more powerful. A tricky thing is, if you've really, really inculcated your propaganda effectively into the masses, then what happens if you no longer, I don't know, if that propaganda no longer serves the purposes you're trying to do today? You can actually become a prisoner of your own propaganda once it's into people's heads, if you try and change course. And so that can be a tricky thing uh, for, a, for a political leader or somebody like that. 
Another example, hearkening back to World War I, and this is just in my head because this is what I've been you know, studying lately and working on podcast episodes on lately. The British and the Americans and others were putting out so much hate propaganda about the Germans during World War I. By the way, they weren't Nazis in World War I. Keep that in mind. Um, they put out so much you know, propaganda demonizing the Germans in every way possible and saying the Germans started this war 100%, it's all their fault, that when the war ended, there's a problem. You can't be magnanimous to your defeated enemy if you've just spent four years relentlessly po uh, persuading your population that the Germans are evil monsters who deserve all the blame for the war. In other words, you can't just flip the switch off and go, oh, all right, yeah, we needed to tell you they were all monsters and evil because we were fighting the war, but now that it ended yesterday, now let's be generous and magnanimous in defeat. And so part of why the Treaty of Versailles ended up being so ridiculously one-sided and unfair and punitive towards Germany, in contrast to, say, uh, the treaty that ended the Napoleonic Wars back in 1815, where France was treated relatively generously in defeat, part of it is that in the early 20th century, you had mass propaganda and mass democracy. And so, in other words, British and French leaders, even if they had the wisdom in 1918 to say, you know what, now that the war's over, we need to you know, not be too hard on Germany, they couldn't have done it politically because they were now audience captured in a way. They were now prisoners of their own propaganda. And if they started to say, hey, I know we told you these people were monsters for four years, but they're actually not, let's make a generous peace, it's not gonna work politically. So, just to close out, you know, I, I hope I've, I've given you some stuff to think about as far as propaganda, how it works. I think there are some lessons from what I've said that you could potentially use, maybe with some modifications, for ethical purposes that you might find useful. Some of them, maybe there's no way to do it ethically. Um, but I hope I've given you, you know, some ways to kind of spot what's being done to you when you're being propagandized. I'm sure, you know, again, many of you are probably a little bit smarter than the average bear when it comes to that, but um, last thing I want to mention is, is there a way to deprogram a heavily propagandized person? This I'm still working on, to be honest. And this is something um, I might do, you know, some episodes on um, in the coming months. I'll tell you, though, what I'm looking at right now to see if I can figure something out on this. I'm reading books about cults, and in particular, about people who deprogram people who have been in cults. And I'm hoping that once I've looked at enough of that stuff, I'll be able to piece together some, some ideas, some suggestions. Right? Because there's a difference between the person that's only a little bit blue-pilled and the person that's like chugging blue pills by the fistful every day, right? And so the question is, you know, if you've got someone, you know, if it's a stranger, like don't bother, don't waste your time, but maybe it's somebody you care about that otherwise you're friends with or close to or family member or whatever, and maybe you want to figure out a way to try and get them to at least not be completely chugging the blue pills all day long. So um, a few things, though, that I would say that, that I already am, am kind of, you know, putting, putting together. One is there's probably no one-size-fits-all answer. Just as no one propaganda works equally well for all people, probably no one method of trying to undo propaganda is going to work equally well for all people. Um, it's possible, I'm, I'm, my mind's not made up on this yet, it's possible some people are so gone that 
like nothing can possibly knock them off their perch. So maybe that's an important thing too, is to be able to kind of triage, say like, oh, this person's just beyond, beyond any, any help. Um, I do think though that less is more. In other words, if you just try and barrage somebody with facts and counter narratives and counter arguments, that backfire effect is gonna kick in. And so less is probably more. And related to that, I think that pull, don't push is important. It's better to kind of, you know, throw out a little remark, or even better, throw out a good question that just kind of knocks them off balance a little bit and, and provides that little, like, moment of doxastic uh, openness. And then step back and wait for them to come to you. Be like, hey, that, that question you asked me the other day really made me think. You know, and then maybe they're open to more. Um, so anyway, and then uh, just really quick, uh, if anybody wants to read uh, some of the most important books about propaganda out there, of course, um, Edward Bernays' Propaganda is worth reading if you, if you haven't already. Uh, another uh, early classic, Orwell, 1984. And by the way, I, I will say, you know, I'm sure many of you have read 1984, probably all of you, most, most of you. If you haven't read it in a long time, go reread it. Because a lot of us read it, you know, when we were very young, and then we're like, oh, yeah, I know that book. Like, no, 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 no. If you haven't read 1984 for a decade or two, go back to it. And you'll see, like, it's even more, you know, right than you thought or that, than you remembered. Um, Walter Lippmann, Public Opinion. He was involved with Woodrow Wilson and the Committee on Public Information in World War I. Uh, Noam Chomsky and uh, Edward Herman, Manufacturing Consent. That's another one I'm rereading right now for the first time in a long time. And as with 1984, I'm like, oh, this is even, you know, more true than I thought. And, you know, it's unfortunate Chomsky's brain got broke by Trump, by Trump and then got broken again by COVID because the guy really did do a lot of great work on things like propaganda and war and stuff. Um, Munitions of the Mind by Philip Taylor, which is just a history from ancient to modern times of propaganda. Uh, and one I mentioned already in this talk, which is The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, which is talking about mass movements, but obviously a lot of it, what he says, applies to like how propaganda works. So anyway, I hope that I've given you all you know, some stuff to think about. I know we all need more books to read like we need a hole in the head, um, but uh, I'm done being the obstacle in the way of you and your lunch, although I am happy to take questions if anybody has any. All right, wait a minute. Hang on. I'm gonna. We got. We got a microphone here for questions, and I'd like to be the obstacle between us and lunch. But but then, if you do have a question, come on over here to this mic. Um, okay. So I have a, a couple quick things. One thing I want to say. I don't want. By the way, don't do as I do. Do as I say. Don't give a speech. Just ask a question. I'm going to give a small speech because I founded this thing, so I'm allowed to do that. So. Uh, first thing is, the less is more thing is very, very helpful, especially with the COVID stuff. Because you could give people a billion uh, data points and they won't be able to process them. Just give them one. Just say, before we did all these things, how would you have predicted that a place like Florida would come out in age-adjusted mortality? Where would you have thought? Now, be honest with me. You wouldn't have thought it would be in the bottom third. Right? You would have thought not only would it be number one, it would be way, way number one. Where would you have thought Sweden would be? Would you have thought Sweden would be like 57 in the world? Or would you have thought it would be not only number one, but way, way number one? 
Those are two points, and you have graphs for each of them. I email these things once in a while. That's it. That's all you have. Just leave it. Would you have been making excuses? Oh, well, they probably had some kind of secret lockdown. I didn't know. No, no, you wouldn't have. You would have said flat out that's, that country or that state is going to be devastated. So all of us, so, so admit, it turned out better than you thought. Let's be happy about that. Like, we're not weird, freakish, you know, losers who are cheering that, you know, deaths in different places. We want to be happy that this place did. We, we don't want to be secretly thinking, I wish Florida did worse so I could just tell them I told you so. You, you're not a monster, right? You're a normal person. You should be happy about this. All right, but, the, but my question is, you said something very tantalizing toward the end that I'm, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on for a minute. You said maybe there are some of these techniques that could be used for good. Can you think out loud about what those are and how we might use them? Okay, one is narrative being more important than facts. Because in general, uh, if you can tell a compelling story, whatever that means, that's going to resonate with people more than just a laundry list of facts, even if it's overwhelming evidence supporting whatever point you're trying to make. And this is something that, you know, I don't think is necessarily being, as, as long as you're not telling a narrative that you know or believe to be false or manipulative in some way, uh, I don't think it's unethical to, to use the technique of narrative over facts, whether it's just to make people like you by telling funny stories at the bar, or whether it's, you know, doing, doing sales, again, assuming you're not doing it in any dishonest sort of a way where you're misleading people or lying about the product or whatever, but if you're being totally honest, um, that narrative can work. And just in general, if you're, if you're producing any sort of media or whatever, um, I think that's a good one to keep in mind. Um, the statistics being effective but only in, in moderation or, or you know, very minimalist, I, I think is also a good one. Um, let's see. You know, one that I. Yeah, I I think. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. I I think the one, the one dangerous thing about the use of villains, and and you're absolutely right that we do have, um, much more villains than we can possibly demonize in one day, is the danger I think, um, from our ideological perspective, of focusing on villains too much, is that it can distract people from the larger issue, which may in fact be systemic. So in other words, if, if all you do all day long, and you see this with a lot of the kind of like mainstream conservatives, all they do all day long is demonize Joe Biden. And it's like, well, first off, Joe Biden's not even really in charge. Like if anybody thinks that, I don't know what to tell you. Like there's, there's like 12 hours of YouTube clips of him clearly not being all there. So like even if you removed him tomorrow, but everybody else in the administration is the same people. I don't think there would be any change uh, other than, you know, we'd now be laughing at Kamala Harris's crazy ramblings or whatever. Um, and the same thing I think is, is true with a lot of things where, where if you fixate it on one individual, then that gives the impression to people of, well, if we just replace that one individual, problem solved, right? Well, if we could just get a better, more prudent chairman of the Fed, everything would be fine. If we could just replace Fauci with the next bureaucrat down the totem pole, everything would be fine. It's like, no, you know. So yeah, I, I think, it, I think having, having specific enemies uh, can be, you know, useful to kind of grab people's attention and, you know, kind of pull them in, but that it's potentially a problem if you 
convince them, whether willingly or not, wittingly or not, convince them that the problem is just this one person or this one little group of people or whatever, when in fact many of the problems that we care about the most are, in the real sense of the word, systemic. So, question. Yeah, um, I just, uh, so thank you for your talk. It was really informative, interesting. Thank you. Um, I missed the name of your podcast. Could you please remind us so that everybody can hear that and I can download it? Absolutely. Dangerous History Podcast. Dangerous History Podcast. And if you just put into your favorite browser, dangerousherypodcast.com, that's my website. But of course, most people don't listen to podcasts off websites and haven't since like 10 years ago. So um, wherever you like to consume your podcast, whatever podcatcher you use, just put in Dangerous History Podcast, and uh, you'll see my, my logo incorporates this. So it's easy to spot out of the lineup. Yep, next question. Uh, how much work can you put into developing the nonverbal? Because, you know, take somebody like Tony Robbins. I mean, he, he manipulates people, you know, through his body language, through how fast or how slow he talks, you know, and of course, just, you know, people who pause very effectively. I mean, how much do you think, I, I mean, that's important too, and how do we get better at that, would you say? That's a good question, and maybe I'm not the greatest example, because I had some un un uh, ineffective pauses, um, unintentional pauses, as opposed to intentional ones for... Dramatic effect. <laughs> and, and I'm not an expert on this. Um, you know, it's not something I've, I've looked into. Maybe, maybe I should. But, um, you know, there are books and videos and things out there about things like body language, um, you know, verbal persuasion techniques. Of course, the, the famous one that's a little bit controversial is, uh, what is it, neuro-linguistic programming or whatever that's, yeah, yeah, which you know, is a little bit culty. I, I can't say I've delved into it too deeply, but, you know, this, this is one of those that seems like it could potentially be Machiavellian. But, you know, if you're just trying to figure out, like, how to make yourself, you know, a more uh, charismatic person, a more interesting speaker, or whatever like that, um, you know, just go on YouTube even. There's, there's a, a bunch of videos on that. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's an ethical problem with that if you're using it for, for good reasons, not to, you know, not not to manipulate people deceptively or whatever like that. Um, but it also might be worth studying those things so that you can understand when someone's doing it to you, right? So that you can, you can understand when like a Bill Clinton type figure is putting the full sociopathic charm on you. You, you can understand like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like this person is, you know, cares about me, feels my pain, so charismatic, so warm, and you can understand like, no, this could be a psychopath manipulating me. And that is something I have looked into a bit, and if, you know, fair amount is psychopaths. I think you need to understand psychopathy and what a psychopath really is, not the Hollywood version, because I honestly believe that a huge percentage of people in high positions of power are psychopaths. And until you understand that, you don't really understand much of why they do what they do, how they operate, that sort of thing. It's noon. So, C.J. Kilmer, thank you very much. I'm sorry. I hate when people have questions and I have to move on, but I, as I learned at the Mises Institute. Yeah, please. If anybody uh, who wanted to ask a question wants to ask me a question, yeah. you know, in person afterward, feel free. I was just about to volunteer you for that, so it's funny you should say that. <laughs> All right, so I hope you enjoyed this presentation, and I do have a few more things to say before I close out. 
One is, I think I forgot to mention, actually one of my favorite books about propaganda. When I was running through my little reading list, I was a little bit pressed for time, and I believe I left out Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitudes by Jacques Ellul. And Jacques Ellul, if you don't know, he's a very interesting intellectual of the 20th century. He was a French Christian anarchist. And he's really kind of his own thing. And I've read this book by him, and I've read some shorter pieces by him. I do want to read some other books by him, because I do find him a very interesting and unique and penetrating thinker. But anyway, that has been a very influential book ever since I read it when I was in graduate school, when I was doing a history graduate seminar on propaganda. The second thing I want to mention, and I'll link to this in the show notes as well, is that I am putting myself out there in kind of a more, I don't know, direct or self-advertising kind of a way as a potential speaker at your event. And this is in part because I have way more schedule flexibility, as you might imagine, now that I am self-employed. So in the past, you know, I've spoken at various events related to libertarianism or podcasting, everything from Pork Fest to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest to the Free Coast Festival, also in New Hampshire, to a podcasting, an educational podcasting conference at Harvard University several years ago. But I was restricted when I had my teaching job, as you might imagine, from being able to accept lots of other potential speaking engagements. Basically, it was very difficult for me to do a speaking engagement if it wasn't either during kind of Christmas break time period or during spring or summer break for me, particularly if it involved any sort of significant travel. So I did sometimes have to turn down potential speaking engagements. And of course, you know, that's when I wasn't even sort of like pushing it or putting myself out there more. But anyway, I am going to, after I record this intro and outro for this episode, and before I publish this episode, I am going to set up a little public speaking page on my website. It'll be profcj.org slash cjspeaks. And it'll have a little bit more information if you would like to invite me to speak to any sort of event or gathering or whatever that you're having. And my rates currently for all that, as well as links to some of the presentations I've given over the years that I've made into DHP episodes. If you're considering inviting me to be a speaker at your event or what have you, and you would like some examples of the kinds of things I've done in the past, and of course, you know, sky's the limit as far as things in the future, as long as it's the sort of topics that I can speak about. So anyway, if you run any sort of an event or gathering that you think I might be a good fit for as far as a speaker, please go to that page, profcj.org slash cjspeaks, and find out more information. And if you decide that you would like to invite me as a speaker to your event or gathering, please get in touch with me in the manner that is on that page. And as always, please consider supporting my work at the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon or Subscribestar if you like what I do and want to help me keep doing it and do more of it and get some bonus stuff. And again, more bonus stuff is coming in the near future now that I'm liberated from the day job. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.